electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner, a big call on the S&P 500 as we head into the final trading week of the month and the quarter, and it's an important one with President Biden's infrastructure plan in focus and the jobs report this week. Plus, it's being called a once-in-a-decade margin call. We are all over this developing story that is rocking Wall Street and the markets. Our investment committee today, Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private Wealth, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss, and... TRB, Josh Brown. Let's get a check on the markets at this hour. We got red hours across the board, although just fractions of a percent of losses for the Dow and the S&P 500. The selling once again being focused on the Nasdaq Composite, which is down eight tenths of a percent, as well as the Russell 2000, which is down two percent. For the uh, month, we should note that the Russell is down by 1.3%. Let's get to the investment committee with their thoughts on where the markets are headed. Josh, it looks like a continuation of this trend, a questioning of growth and value, uh, excuse me, of value as well as small caps at this point. Yeah, I guess I just, Melissa, it's so good to be on, on with you, by the way. Um, I just, I guess I just don't look at it as growth versus value. I look at it as reopening versus not reopening. I really feel that large pools of capital are investing thematically more so than they are investing based on style because you're always going to have growth investors you're always going to have value investors and then you'll always have generalists which is most of the money in the market and most of the money in the market is thinking about the next six months to a year uh they're thinking about the infrastructure bill and they're thinking about reopening so i really think that those are the, the key dividing lines uh in the market today more so than growth versus value i want to spotlight berkshire hathaway BRKB, I'm long. I think this is a Berkshire Hathaway type of market environment right now. The ARC names are down another 3.5%. Russell 2000 growth down another 3%. But what continues to be strong are the areas that Berkshire tends to invest in. You got U.S. Steel up, which takes an act of God generally for that <laughs> stock to rally. That's ticker symbol X. Um, transports look strong. Look at the rails. Had a major merger there with... Uh, uh, with KSU. The home builders are absolutely on fire. Um, and the banks are not really given much back, uh, by and large. Insurance companies either. So this is a Berkshire type of market. And I would point out the breakout in Berkshire that happened March 9th, retested on light volume, right back to uh, headed toward new record highs. That breakout is a monster. It is years in the making. So if you're along that name with me, I would, I would stick with it. But. I think that's a, uh, an important distinction to make um, that Josh is making in terms of how you view the sectors at this point of time within this recovery, Shannon, because some value right now may be considered just overpriced. It's not value in the typical sense of value, but reflation and reopening seems to be a better categorization of the trade that so many think are, are the ones to be in right now. 
I would agree with Josh. I think that there's a difference between um, value and growth and, and cyclicals and wanting to add um, incremental exposure to cyclical names in your portfolio. Uh, you know, in my view, we have kind of a barbell approach, right? We're not necessarily, um, we didn't really, really play in the work from home, um, high growth names of last year. And we're not really reaching down into the deep, deep value cyclicals um, that we've seen ra- really rally this first three months of the year. And so what we're looking for is we're thinking about this economic rebound being uh, sustainable, being consistent for the next two years. But we're also thinking about the manufacturing aspect of the rebound. I think there's been a lot of emphasis placed on the reopening of the consumer, where we already have clear evidence that the manufacturing rebound is here to stay. And so from, from my perspective, if you're looking at your portfolio and you're thinking about it in terms of how do I play this potential ebb and flow and this potential volatility that we might see over the course of the next few months, I think you should be playing the long game for the next 12, 18, 24 months. That doesn't necessarily have to be an infrastructure. There's other parts of reopening, like in healthcare, that can be played very easily and still with some value, to your point, from a valuation perspective. Um, But don't limit yourself to trying to make a binary bet on an all-cyclical portfolio, because there's still a lot of really good names that might be classified as growth or quality that could potentially rally as we move through this next 12 to 18 months as well. Uh, Steve Weiss, uh, an interesting point that was being made by Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley is that the thing that worries him the most about the market's trajectory in the next, you know, six to 12 months is the ability to keep up with demand. That demand is going to be so strong coming out of this pandemic that, you know, services, manufactured goods, all that might not be able to keep up. And that could be uh, a hiccup in the recovery. Do you see that? Shannon was just talking about consumer demand and, and manufacturing. I think that's a good problem to have in one respect, that the economy is going to be just just barreling ahead. But what that also leads to is inflation. And will inflation then ramp up, if Mike's right, quicker than anybody's anticipating? Because that's what happens when you have when demand exceeds supply, prices go higher. Realistically, I don't think that's going to be the issue. And I'm with Shannon. I've been saying it for a while, is that the manufacturing boom is going to really boom out of control in a good way. If you take a look at CapEx spending in the last two years under Trump, it was falling off meaningfully because CEOs didn't have confidence in which direction the company, the country was going to go, trade policies, etc. With all that cash that's been on the sideline, with buybacks, even though you know they're less than they were, we're continuing to see negativity come out of Washington about buybacks. So what are you going to do? You can invest in your business. You can invest in jobs. Um, so I think we're very well set up. But to the earlier question, the question Josh was discussing, look, I've said it not only now, but last year, or the year before, is that I don't really look at markets when I pick stocks. I may look at a theme, and I do do that, but I always look bottoms up because that's where you're going to find the value. The value is not in cat and deer. I don't think they're value. Value is in some other names. So that's how I'm playing this. That's how I'm going forward. And that's how I continue to look at it. The economy is very good. I think this is a particularly rough week, one of the roughest weeks we'll see, because who's going to go into the, into the weekend with the markets closed on Friday and the payrolls number, number coming out Friday? How are you going to know which way the market's going to go? I think you'll get a very strong number with jobs reopening. What's that going to do with rates? We see today the market was starting out okay, not great. But then rates moved up aggressively, 
And so now you've got the market selling off. And then you've got Biden's infrastructure plan. How much of that is discounted in the market? Is that going to mean higher rates and people will focus on that? Or are they going to focus on the economic improvement and buy those stocks and buy the market? Because the economy, yes, it'll be confirmed, it'll be stronger. So it's a pretty confusing time in the market. My advice is take an early Easter weekend, celebrate Passover by not being in the looking at your screens and come back in a couple of weeks, couple of months and see where you are. But watch the halftime report in CNBC, obviously. I mean, you could take yeah. time off but still watch TV and see of what course. we're saying. Yeah, of course. That's of what course. you meant. I'm sure I didn't that, say not I'm watch. I'm sure that's what you meant, Steve Weiss. Yeah. <sighs> All right. It's exactly what I meant, Melissa. Watch that. Don't watch your screen. Stay in position <laughs> and you'll come back and mar the market will be higher. All right, Joe, I'm going to go to you. What, what is value in this, in this kind of market? And, and I, I'm going to frame this question with a look at IBM, if you'll just indulge me, Joe. IBM is up 14 percent, almost 15 percent this past month. This is a tech stock. It's not being caught up in sort of this tech stock because it's a low multiple stock. It's obviously being bid up because people might be looking for value in this market, value in technology. So how should we look at value? Is this actually tech value in your view? Well, in the, in the case of IBM, it's not viewed as a long duration technology name. So that's one of the reasons why it's having a recovery. I think to Josh's point, this isn't about growth or value. This is about industries that we could define from 2020 as being injured or impaired versus healthy industries. And what we're doing right now is we're kind of normalizing what was very abnormal in 2020. So you have injured and impaired industries making this dramatic comeback in a reflation-oriented, economic, optimist type of strategy. And it's very similar to what we experienced in 2015 and 2016. 2015, you had a manufacturing recession. You came out of it, the injured and impaired industries like energy, like construction and machinery, like consumer finance, they led the market higher in 2016. So that's exactly what you're seeing right now. And I think it's, it's really about strategy, Melissa. If you look at S&P 500 companies and you identify where's the outperformance year to date, it's in companies that you define as a short duration, low liquidity, weak balance sheets. Where in strategies are there significant underperformance? Year to date, high revenue growth, strong balance sheets, they're actually lower on the year. So I just think we've got the script from prior years. It's applicable to where we are right now. And I agree with Shannon. You have to make sure you've got balance between both strategies because normalizing means that ultimately the performance becomes more dispersed and you're going to see both strategies, growth and value, work for you. All right, let's bring in Jonathan Krinsky, Chief Market Technician at Baycrest Partners. Um, Jonathan is making a very bold call that the S&P 500 is headed much higher in the month of April. April's around the corner, Jonathan. So what do you anticipate? Well, so going on some of the uh, talking points you guys said earlier, there's been this very bipolar market, um, and it really culminated in the last several months where you had the Russell 1000 growth and Russell 1000 value, the 50-day rolling correlation on a value basis actually went negative for the first time in about two, uh, two decades. We haven't seen it since the late 90s. So um, what that meant is that the S&P has basically treaded water. It's moved sideways for the last couple of months for all intents and purposes. And because we've seen that day-to-day -day where one day one area of the market will be up, one 
and the other area of the market will be down. So we think um, Friday was actually an early indication, despite all the, the noise with the, uh, with the TMT space. We actually saw Russell 1000 growth and value both up about 1.6%. And we think that's a sign that we're coming out of this kind of bipolar market. You're going to see growth and value both work together as at, rather than op- in opposition. And that's going to kind of lead to this final blow off, um, as you mentioned, where the S&P can push up towards 4,100, we think. Um, and then as we get into the later part of April, perhaps we'll see some more um, bigger headwinds for the market. But that's kind of our, our thinking at this point. Can that go on for a long period of time, Jonathan, growth and value living side yeah, by side like dogs and cats? It certainly can. And, and by no means, you know, if we get to, to 4,100 in April and things are still healthy and checks are still are still good, we're not going to necessarily say to, to get everything at that point. It's just if you look um, at some other parts of the market, um, some of the low vol names relative, you know, high dividend payers relative to the S&P and relative to high beta, uh, we're seeing the, the relative performance of that so underperformed. We haven't seen that also since um, the late 90s. So we think there's a lot of moving parts here, but overall we think um, you'll, you'll get one more kind of blow off move um, where, where everything kind of works together. And that's probably uh, maybe a, an as good as it gets moment, but we'll see when we get there. Josh, got a question. Hey, Quinsky, I don't like this blow off moment. Can, can we phrase this differently? Because the implication is uh, a record high followed swiftly by a correction in the stock market uh, or maybe the start of something worse. So well, I, I'm just, yeah. I'm, I, guess I'm, I guess I'm asking you to characterize that a blow-off can occur in the midst of a secular bull market and not be a game-over moment. Oh, it's, it certainly can. I think September of last year was a, was a blow-off in the NASDAQ that didn't really disrupt the overall bull market. But um, I think if you, if you think about what's going on, been going on for the last year in this bipolar market, um, we really it's always been this on or off switch, right? A, a stay at home versus, versus a reopen play. We, we haven't really seen very, very much, very many times when both are working together strongly. Um, and that's almost been the wall of worry, right? So if you get a scenario where both are working together, it's almost like what's left, what's left to, you know, to buy, right? If, if cyclicals are firing on all cylinders and you have the growth come back, come roaring back. Um, again, we haven't really seen that yet, but if we get that, that would almost be that as good as it gets moment. Not to say that that will disrupt the long-term bull market, as you mentioned, but um, you know, I think that's that would kind of be the the wall of worry is is almost gone at that point. Joe, you got a question for Jonathan? I do, Jonathan. As you look towards the end of the year, you're introducing the potential for a higher tax consequence, and you're also going to be. Uh, looking forward for earnings that on a year-on-year basis are going to have some difficult comparisons to Q1 and Q2 of 2021. So I guess the question would be, historically, as you look back upon markets, is there, and there seems to be this traditional belief that a, a change to higher taxes acts as an impediment to uh, stocks moving higher, as you study history, is that accurate? Well, you know, I don't know about about that per se, but I do think um, one of the one of the reasons why we think as you get into April it could be some headwinds is you're going to have those um, people coming to terms with with long term capital gains selling um, post you know one year post the low. So we'll see if that becomes an issue. Um, but as far as uh, you know, the higher tax taxes, I you know I think if you look throughout history, there's there's been plenty of times in the market 
um, where stocks have done well in higher tax regimes as well as in, in lower. And you'll find that with a lot of correlations, whether you're talking about rising rates, um, a higher dollar, all those correlations, it, it's very, there are very few of them that are always one way or, or the other. There's oftentimes a little bit of uh, both in there. So, Jonathan, if I could just bottom line this this message that you're sending out to investors. I mean, are you instructing people or recommending that they buy the the most beaten down tech stocks in, in anticipation of some sort of a catch up with, with growth and so value we, living? We've, you actually know? Been, we've actually been recommending within within the growth sector. Um, you you kind of probably want to avoid some of the, the real long duration plays, some of the super mega high growth, the SPACs, the mm-hmm. that super high growth software. I, th- I think that's the area market that might have more of an issue. Um, I think you still can be in some of the fang names, uh, you know, the the traditional kind of growth, but not hyper growth names. I think those still work. And that's probably, you know, you guys have talked about this a lot. Names like Facebook and and Amazon and Microsoft, they've done nothing for, for you know, six, seven, eight, nine months. I think that could be the you know, the culmination where you finally get a breakout in those, you get a break, you know, move higher in, in some of the cyclicals that have already per- been performing. Um, and again, you know, we'll see if we get there, but that would be kind of the, uh, you know, the, the blow off that we're talking about. All right, Jonathan, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Jonathan Krinsky, Chief Market Technician at Baycrest Partners. Let's go straight to some of these bullish calls um, because Jonathan's mentioning some of the big cap tech names, the FANG names. Start with Facebook here. This one came out today, obviously. Price target being raised to a new street high, 385 at Deutsche Bank. Um, Shannon, you own it. They're, they're positive on, on ads for this year, for the first quarter, increasing their first quarter as well as full year 21 estimates. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is a tough stock for people to own, buy, love. Um, you know, I think it's it's challenging with the ever-present regulatory concerns, the privacy overhang, and just, you know, I think the, um, the distaste um, from the election season, um, you know, in 2016, and really that rolled through the entire um, four years of the Trump administration, as far as thinking about what Facebook owes to us. Um, as users of its interface. And the reality is, is that they continue to gain ad spend. Um, They continue to monetize the properties that they have. They are under such scrutiny because they have been successful in continuing to take greater and greater share of our digital time. And so for us, you know, as, as much as we are concerned about some of the regulatory overhang, I do think that they're going to continue to deliver solid results. It's not my favorite of the fangs, to be frank, um, but it certainly is in our basket. And I think that we will continue to focus on that because it's going to continue to show us earnings growth and revenue growth, which is what we're looking for in the technology space over the next 12 months. Weiss, you want to pull back to get in on Facebook. What kind of pullback are you looking for? And in, in Jonathan Krinsky's world, now might be the time to buy it if we are going to see this, this uh, you know, coincidental rise in both growth and value. Yeah, you know, it, it, I haven't picked a level. Uh, I actually do like it. I regret selling it. I sold it not too far from, from where it is, but nonetheless, I pay taxes on the gain. Um, I'm just l- looking for a level where you're not seeing price increases by 10% like you saw today. I mean, if you like the stock at 355, you didn't need to go to 385 on a target in terms of somebody to buy it to get in. So it's going to be a general market call. Um, but I'm just waiting for the market to pull back a little bit before deploying any of the cash that I've raised. I think that's a good point. And I think that goes to the huh. heart of whether or not you believe Krinsky or not. And Josh, I'll go to you. You're friends with Krinsky. You follow his work. You respect his work. 
Yeah. Um, but are you skeptical? I mean, if rates went to one seven, one seven, whatever it is, I mean, is this really a rates question whether or not you can be invested right now in big cap tech as opposed to I see growth and value living together like dogs and cats go S&P 500 blows through four thousand. There's a lot of childish uh, stuff said on this topic. I would remind you that uh, in 1995, the 10-year Treasury rate was like 7.5%, and you still had one of the biggest runs for growth stocks, tech stocks in particular, in the history of humankind. Um, so I don't subscribe to these theories that higher rates are necessarily negative for technology. If anything, I can make the case that... Um, Rising rates make people even more focused on how they're spending money, and they increasingly turn to tech as a way to cut costs out of, out of the, the system in a, a potentially inflationary uh, environment. So I don't buy it. I don't, think it's, uh, I don't think it's the same thing as saying, however, that business models predicated on um, earnings 10 years from now, those you probably do see more of an effect. When cash has a yield when short-term treasuries have a yield, when intermediate-term treasuries have a yield, then there's competition for capital. That just hasn't been the case. The, the Fed and Treasury are effect, effectively pumping $120 billion a month into the bond and stock markets, and uh, cash yields nothing. So you do have a willingness for people to buy experiments and art projects and NFTs and Monopoly and whatever else. That will go away with uh, a decent yield on, on cash and on short-term treasuries. But is 1.7% the number? I'm not sure. We saw a lot of SPACs lose their premiums. That makes sense to me. Um, we saw 17 true IPOs last week, of which only three of them were above the offering price. That's definitely a, a different sentiment around new issues. So there is some change with where rates have gone, but I don't think they derail growth investing in general. I think that's... Uh, a little too simplistic. May I ask you, Josh, in your historical example, where did mm. rates come from before they rose to 7%? Per and I don't know this answer. I'm, I'm asking because I remember a year ago when, when rates were a third of where they are right now. Yeah. You want to be careful quoting things that are already in percentage terms in percentage terms. So uh, rates have tripled. That's true. But on an absolute level, we're not even at the bottom end of the range that we've been in for the last 10 years since the end of the financial crisis. So even in 2019, uh, 2018, you had a 3% 10-year. We're halfway back there. And that was in a normal environment. So I would argue the economy is, is growing as fast, if not faster, than it was in 2018. So if anything, 10-year Treasury rate should be higher. Can the Fed keep rates at the overnight rates at an emergency level as the 10-year gets back toward 2%, I mean, I, I doubt they'd want to, um, but maybe they'll try. So that's what the market's pricing in now. That does not blow up the growth trade. It just makes people think twice about funding art projects and experiments with no hope of any kind of cash flow anytime soon. So that's where the pressure is. We see that in prices already for SPACs, for IPOs, for growth names in the Russell 1000 with no earnings. That process is already underway and has been since mid-February, and I think it's healthy. I don't think it hurts the Googles, the Apples, the Amazons. I really don't. Except that it has. Except that it has. 
right? I mean, no, Jonathan, it doesn't hurt their business. Hey, Mel, can, 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 can I take a quick crack at it? Hold on. Hold on. Agreed. It doesn't hurt their businesses, but it, it impacts the way investors may view their valuation. As Jonathan had mentioned, they've basically gone not hardly anywhere over the past six months. Steve Weiss, go ahead. And, and by the way, you'll never catch yeah, me so, saying that rates have risen by a certain percent, except to underscore the fact that the trajectory of the rise that we've seen is probably very different from what we've seen in the past. Go ahead, Weiss. The, pay, the pace, the not pace. the trajectory. No, I agree with the, the exactly what right. You're right about that. I, I, right agree with, that. I, I agree with what, with what you were saying. I, I don't believe that it's competition. I don't believe that anybody's going to go to a, to a 2% 10-year because they think it's competitive rate with, with equities, that the returns are going to be better. Returns in, in bonds, if you measure them against uh, equities, has lagged and always lagged and will always lag. So with the exception of some of the junk that spikes here and there, to me, it's the narrative that controls and that creates the opportunity. In other words, people think they should react because rates are going up. Obviously, it's a question of pace, how fast they move up, because that gets people nervous. And the Fed is lagging behind. And I think the world knows that. So if the Fed raises rates, sure, be New York reaction down, but it's not going to impact those companies. So what Josh is referring to, listing all those things, I'll give you one word, speculative. There's speculative assets that come down, the hype, the late money that came into the market, that's suffering the pain and the first ticks down, and then they sell it. And you go back to reasonable investing. So I think you find opportunity during those periods because there's no way, frankly, even a 4% 10 years not going to impact what a Corvo does, what a Moderna does. It's just not going to. So it's the, and when I talk about the end of this week, you're going to see those bumps in the market. And that's going to create, once again, the opportunity. And that's what you got to go. And ignore the headlines. Oh, rising rates are bad. Or to Joe's point, if you look at a chart of income tax increases, there have only been two periods where the market's actually been flat when you've seen tax increases, corporate capital gains and individual taxes raised at the same time. I think there were two or three periods of the last 50 years. The market's going up. It's not going up that day. It's going up the next month or two months later. So just stick to bottom line fundamentals and you'll be fine. All right. We've got to take a break here. Up next. It has been called a once-in-a-decade margin call that is rocking the markets in Wall Street. Billions of dollars worth of trades being unwound. The stocks that are getting slammed by and the fears about contagion. Halftime's back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here's your CNBC COVID update at this hour. In its opening statement at the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, the prosecution is telling the jury that it will hear a recording of George Floyd crying out as he was being restrained. You will hear him crying out and you will hear him cry out in pain. My stomach hurts, my neck hurts, everything hurts. Uh, you will hear that for yourself. Please, I can't breathe, please, your knee on my neck. Russian hackers were able to access email accounts belonging to Chad Wolf, the Homeland Security Secretary under President Trump. That's according to the Associated Press, which says that the intelligence value of that hack, part of the solar winds intrusion, is not publicly known.
And Barack Obama's step-grandmother has died at the age of 99. Sarah Obama, who went by Mama Sarah, helped raise Obama's father. She also promoted education for girls and orphans in her rural Kenyan village. That is our CNBC News update for this hour. Melissa, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. The investment committee is making some moves in their portfolios. Weiss, you've been pretty busy. You sold 2.6, Bungie, and Teradyne. Why'd you get out of those? I sold 2.6 because uh, I played it for a bounce. I'd owned it before, and getting to a bidding war uh, was not the best thing in my view. Plus, when you're giving up stock, it's going to be under pressure, under the R pressure. So I just thought that I've got enough exposure in tech there. Uh, in Teradyne, same thing. Uh, you know, I've got TSM. I've got some other technology stocks. Just looking to ratchet back there. In terms of Bungie, um, I've added sickle exposure, and Bungie is one that uh, sort of failed to break out. It was more of a trade in the commodity inflation cycle, and I just chose not to hold on to it. So I've got my exposure there as well. Uh, Joe, you bought some names, Score Media and Gaming. Yes, and, and before we, we talk about this, what I don't want the viewers to do is race out in the next 20 minutes and play a game of leapfrog to try and get into the stock. I want you to get into it ultimately. I took a small position in it. The ticker symbol is SCR. It recently IPO'd on the NASDAQ. It's a Canadian company that's focused on digital sports media and online gaming. Ultimately, within Canada, they'll probably see 20% market penetration as it relates to online gaming. And the ability to grow their market share here in the United States is significant. They just entered into a partnership with Caesars. So now they're going to have an online gaming presence in Illinois. I believe online gaming is going to offer the solutions to municipalities and states in the ability to grow their revenue. So you've got DraftKings, you've got Penn Gaming. This is a very small company. I think it's a billion and a half in market cap. I took a small position. Can they all win, Joe, in your view, or is this survival of the fittest? Well, you only have about 13 states currently mm -hmm. uh, that have the ability uh, to have online gaming. So I, I think ultimately the growth opportunity for further states, whether it's Texas, Georgia, uh, that will present itself in the near term. And I think during that period that, yes, multiple companies can be winners in this environment. And ultimately, when that ends, Melissa, I think that's where consolidation comes into play uh -huh. and companies begin to recognize value uh, through reaching out and acquisition. All right, that stock taking higher. Uh, actually, intra intraday session highs at this point of 5%. Josh bought some more Simon property. Why, Josh? Because uh, I'm a baller. Why else do I do everything <laughs> well, I that's do? To be, no, yeah, I, of course, obviously. I, <laughs> I'm the opposite of a baller. I took a very timid position in Simon <laughs> in the 60s, and I should have been bigger. So I'm making up for that. I actually doubled up. Uh, I'm adding to the stock 70% or so higher than, than where I first started buying it. But I feel very comfortable doing that because I think their business is returning by more than 70%. Uh, from when I got into the stock, uh, there were people talking about uh, every mall in the country going to zero. And of course, that's not going to be the case. These are A malls. They have over 90% of tenants uh, current on their rent. No problems. Um, they obviously have some space to fill, some big anchor tenants. But that's just the, the state of the industry. I don't expect the stock to get back above 200. But I think a nice total return, if it gets back to 150, plus the yield it's paying me right now, I will be very happy. I would also note for viewers that I own this in a tax-deferred account. I do not want uh, these REIT uh, payments to me 
being taxed at ordinary income. Mm. So I own this in an IRA, which is how I, I try to tell people if they have that flexibility to buy their, uh, their REITs. So this is one of my favorite names right now, the ongoing suburbanization of America. This is the new town square. And I think uh, the financial flexibility this company now has is even better shape than they were going into the pandemic. And uh, I think it'll work. The new town square, that sort of resonates as somebody who grew up on Long Island. <laughs> Josh, thanks for that. Um, we want to get to uh, development. You're a North Shore, right? A North, yeah. yeah, great, Nick. Um, more developments are surfacing behind the trading volatility that saw Viacom, CBS, and Discovery shares lose nearly half of their value last week. Leslie Picker and Dom Chu following the money on that story. We start off with Les. Hey, Mel, that's right. Bill Huang was practically an unknown entity up until this weekend, and now his towering risk tolerance has caught the ire of regulators and counterparties and may be partially responsible for billions of dollars in losses at large bank. Huang is the face behind Archegos Capital Management. It's a family office, not a hedge fund, but it's one that is said to have taken an exorbitant amount of leverage, concentration, and liquidity risk. When the market turned against him in recent weeks, he faced a multitude of margin calls, causing the banks to sell his assets in a variety of names, including, as you mentioned, Viacom CBS, Discovery, and a group of Chinese technology companies. Wang has not returned my calls seeking comment. Uh, some of his trading, though, was done via swaps, which gave him the capacity to be even more levered without the need to disclose what he's holding. Uh, and he worked with at least six prime brokers that we know of, none of whom had a full picture of his exposure. That's kind of the way these things work. Now, Credit Suisse and Nomura have each said that they are facing p- material losses. Others, such as Deutsche Bank and Goldman, appear to be in better shape. That's also the case with Morgan Stanley, which I just learned has been telling investors it sold $15 billion worth of blocks in the last few days. It has no more blocks to do, and the firm has not incurred significant losses as a result of these transactions. That's according to a person with knowledge of the matter. Mel. So, Leslie, Huang worked with six prime brokers. It, it sounds, in, and none of them had, had an idea of what the full picture of, of risk was. So, basically, do, do you think that he just didn't divulge it to them in order for each of them uh, to extend that sort of leverage to him? That's the sense I get, that he, he didn't have to. He chose not to. Uh, and he wound up taking a, an amount of risk that most people would think outside the realm of, of possibility. Uh, that's according to people who I've spoke with, spoken with who are familiar with these kinds of things. Uh, and so it's one of those things where it, it uh, would go against the trust of the prime broker to mm-hmm. you know, go to another PB and say, hey, what are you seeing with this guy? It's kind of one of those things that's usually kept kind of closer to the vest. Uh, and so because of that and because of the lack of disclosure here, no one really knew the amount of risk that was being taken. Uh, and therefore, they didn't weren't able to foresee what what ultimately happened. Wow, there's so there are many levels here where there's just lack of transparency. Mm-hmm. This is just so fascinating. Leslie, thank you. Let's get to Dom now on some of the other stocks impacted by the margin call fallout. Dom. When you're using derivatives and swaps, that transparency always comes into issue here. But where we are seeing a lot of the picture play out is certainly in the public stock markets. Specifically, let's start with the ETFs on the bigger picture macro side of things, Melissa. If you look at the Crane Share CSI China Internet ETF, that's an 
ETF that tracks many of those big names like Alibaba, Baidu, and whatnot. It's been caught up in this kind of mu- huge downswing in these stocks just over the course of the past few weeks or so, much more than what's happened with the Chinese large-cap stock ETF. You can see there, yes, a decline, but to lesser of a degree here. If you take a look at the movements within some of the names that we've actually seen play out in this Archegos-related trade, it has been 10 cent music. Baidu and VIP shop, VIP shop. On a one-year basis, you can see their massive moves higher. But here, on this right-hand side of things, just in the last three to four trading days, we've seen 30, 40 percent drops in just some of those names from their recent highs. That's how big of a deal it was. It's created some dislocations in the market, certainly from a technical basis, a lot of the forced selling. And by the way, it's translating intraday still as well. Tencent Music says they're going to buy back a billion dollars of their own stock. The bid was there early. It's faded a bit now. Discovery Communications and Viacom CBS, they're trying to find some stability here amidst that selling pressure tied to this. And Credit Suisse still down 12%. So the question becomes, at what price do these things go on sale? Enough, Melissa, to warrant them a buy. Back over to you. All right, Dom, thanks. Dom Chu. Up next, the big ETFs to watch today. Halftime reports back in two. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Dom Chu is here with today's ETF Edge. All right, so Melissa, we've mentioned those ETFs. These Chinese tech stocks rocked by that bevy of bad news last week, primarily massive liquidation by hedge fund Archegos Capital, but also concerns over rising regulatory scrutiny both here in the U.S. and overseas in China as well. So the Crane Share CSI China Internet ETF, ticker KWEB, we just looked at it. It took a serious beating, falling nearly 12% in one week. It's on pace for its worst month ever but is now the worst of the selling over, or is there more pain to come? Let's ask Brendan Ahern, CIO of Crane Shares. He runs the K-Web along with Tom Lydon, CEO of ETF Trends. Brendan, let's start with you here. What is going on and how much of the trading in your ETF is being driven by this Archego situation? Well, Dom, since the end of 2018, K-Web is up, still up 100%. We've had a very severe correction where we're now just learning that This terrible behavior by a reckless individual has put a very negative uh, effect on our shareholders. So we certainly hope uh, regulators will respond and and stop this type of activity. But ultimately, we're just right back to where we were at the beginning of the year. We're actually flat year to date. We had a very outsized move. And unfortunately, we've given that given some of that back. But we're very optimistic on the long long and medium term on the K-Web companies. I mean, those Chinese internet stocks, a huge focus here. Tom, I I turn to you here. Is this going to be something that shakes perhaps some of the confidence in the ETF market as well overall? 
No, Dom, it's one of those things that happen. It's it's like the boat in the Suez Canal. You never know what's going to happen. But last week was a bad week for uh, saber-rattling between the U.S. and China. Uh, Biden was pretty open about uh, making sure we had fair competition. China's got a lot of pressure on companies to do well, and they want their skin in the game, their 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 pound of flesh as well. I think to Brendan's, Brendan's point, these stocks are not going away. They're some of the most innovative companies in the world right now, and they're not going to slow down. So it's definitely a buying opportunity. All right. Tom Lydon, Brendan Ahern, thank you very much. By the way, Directions Head of Product joins the conversation at 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time on ETFEdge.cnbc.com. A couple must-watch interviews. Don't miss it. Watch us. Halftime is back after this break. The investment committee is answering your questions. The first one is for Shannon from Kevin in Charlotte. He writes, as Cisco hits a 52-week high and states and restaurants are reopening, does Cisco still have legs to run? Shannon, what do you say about SYY? Well, thanks for the question, Kevin. Um, And actually, I sold SYY a couple of weeks ago because I don't think that it has much more room to run in the interim. It's definitely benefited from the reopening trade, particularly with the pickup in food service and food service ordering. Um, But it's trading near peak multiples, and I think that it's going to take a little while for the earnings to recover um, to justify those multiples. So we actually swapped this out for Mondelez a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Let's get to uh, one for Weiss from Tony in California. In your opinion, what is the best cyclical stock to buy? right now and why? What do you say, Weiss? Well, I think you have to look at what's not traditionally regarded as cyclical and go back to Skyworks, go back to Corvo, because they're in everything. But the one I added to today was U.S. Concrete, USCR, the infrastructure plan, but also the taxes, the tax hit to municipalities was not as great. Roads are in terrible shape. They're going to rebuild them anyway. They're aggregates, they're concrete. I like this one quite a bit. All right, last one for Josh from Steve in Toronto. Is Madison Square Garden Entertainment a buy? What do you say, Josh? So I don't own this. I've been watching it and talking about it as a reopening play. But last week, the story very drastically changed. They are going to reacquire, I guess, or remerge with uh, Madison Square Garden Networks. So MSG Networks is like the New York, I guess, super regional television network that broadcasts uh, Knicks, Rangers, and other stuff. So these two things have been broken apart. Now they're coming back together. Um, I haven't really done a deep enough dive into what this really means for shareholders of the parent uh, to have a strong opinion here. But I would say it's not as clear a pure play on the reopen as it once was if now they're going back into broadcasting. Now they did say they think there's a really strong reason to do that around gaming becoming legalized across the country. And they might be right on that bet, but I have to research this more before I could say anything definitively. All right. Up next, the committee gets uh, ready for the big earnings of this week, including Lululemon, Micron, Walgreens, and much more. Halftime's back right after this. Lululemon is set to report earnings tomorrow. The stock is up more than 60% in a year, but down 10% year to date. Joe, you own this one. I do. Uh, Listen, it reached its peak back on September 2nd. It's fallen back ever since. Nothing's changed about the company. You're still going to get sales growth in 25, 30 percent. It's got the brand recognition. It has the digital experience and revenue since uh, September 2nd is reported in, in each of their earnings. It's been incredibly strong. The problem is going back to the top of the show. 
This is a stock that's identified as a classic momentum name, a hyper-growth-oriented consumer-facing business, and that's not favored right now. That strategy is actually unfavorable with investors. So I'm going to sit in the name, but I'm also going to understand that even a strong earnings report, which you're probably going to get, is not going to move the stock significantly higher. Shannon, um, the comments are interesting that you said wrote about uh, Lululemon. It's it's good, but you think it's very trendy and expensive, which is exactly the way I think about my one pair of Lululemon leggings that I own. Um, but why do you still own it then? I actually don't own it, Melissa. Oh, you don't. And, and okay. I feel like I missed this. No, but I feel like I missed it. And and why I felt like I missed it was because there was definitely an opportunity to pick up on some of these um, work from home trends. And I think Lulu absolutely benefited from that. Now we're seeing, you know, a bit of a trend down. Um, I still think if you're interested in specialty retail and adding that, that's not a place I love to play in. But this is a good brand name. But I do think that there's probably a better entry point than you're seeing right now, despite the the relative weakness as of late. It sounds like Josh is in the same camp, Josh. So what kind of pullback would you look for? So, I mean, it's it's had a decent sized pullback already, more than 20 percent. But this is still 40 billion market cap on 4 billion in sales. And I could tell you, if you look at apparel retailers, uh, 10 times sales really does not exist outside of Lulu. Now, what they have going for them is they just own this increasing segment of the the consumer. And uh, they're doing so well in men's better than anyone would have guessed. And that continues. And there's still a lot of room. There's also only like 500 company-owned stores. So I could picture, and that's in 17 countries, I could picture there being 1,000 Lululemons one day. So I guess if they report a number that the street is either not excited by or disappointed by, and they really kill the stock, that would be an opportunity to buy from me, not an opportunity to sell out of it if I owned it and were somewhat disappointed. So that's the way I'm thinking about it. Uh, who knows? You might see this on my disclosure someday soon. All right. We'll be watching, of course. Final trades next on the Halftime Report. Final trades. Joe Terranova. I'm criticizing myself by giving this final trade. I haven't owned Facebook. What if the ticker symbol for Facebook was Graham, G-R-A-M, identifying the phenomenal acquisition in 2012 that buying for a billion dollars Instagram was? Would you own it then? I think you would, and I should have. Shannon Sakosha. Las Vegas Sands. Uh, I know that there's a lot of concern about investing in EM right now, particularly in, in names like Baba, which I also own. But you can pick up the best positioned gaming company in Macau, and that's going to continue to grow over the course of the next couple of years. Steve Weiss. At core, it's an infrastructure play. It's down today for no reason whatsoever. I'd buy it. You get it on sale. Mr. Baller, Josh Brown. Simon Property, meet me at the mall. I'll be at Panda Express. (laughs) See you there. See you tonight at 5 on Fast. That does it for us. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.